Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast for the first time in season four. Back into even numbers. That is, that's right. We're at season four. Uh, it like, literally took me a second to think about that. Watro. Yep. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, joined as always by my co-host, brother, confidant, person who i enjoy talking about zelda with matt willoughby <laughs> that would be me i am i am he the confidant the person you enjoy talking about zelda with well i i have to say i enjoy talking about zelda with you also i feel like if you and i didn't enjoy talking about zelda together then uh i mean at that point we've like made it way farther into this like week like once weekly spending an hour and a half talking about zelda than anybody <laughs> would have ever expected us and also to. we have if we didn't legitimately enjoy it we would have very successfully fooled all of our however many listeners we have at this point because they all seem to think we enjoy talking to each other about zelda so you know yeah spoiler alert go us we hate zelda it's the worst and we hate each other can't stand this guy <laughs> but for real it's uh it has been a blast always is i have to say um season three uh skyward sword I think has been one of the best seasons, if not, in my personal opinion, the best season that we've had. Uh, it's also uh, grossed us the most listeners per week. Um, so thank you to all of you guys who jumped in on the Skyward Sword train with us. Uh, that was really great for Lyndon and I to be able to capitalize on the release of Skyward Sword HD. I'm glad that you guys uh, jumped in with us and enjoyed it as well. Uh, thank you for the engagement on social media. Thank you for the likes and the downloads and the listens. We really, really, really appreciate it none of this is possible without you and your support so thank you for a wonderful season three uh it was really a whole lot of fun for us and now we are on to season four and it is going to be a really good one as well my first time ever playing through one of the og classics Lyndon, tell us a little bit about what we're going to be playing this season so if you have not been keeping track of the podcast up until this point season four will be covering the Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, as Matt said, truly one of the most classic video games in the canon of video games, bar none. Um, you know, it's often cited as one of the greatest video games of all time, certainly uh, in the top two or three greatest games of that 16-bit generation. This game originally released on the Super Nintendo. Um, and granted, the uh, <laughs> I guess the landscape of video gaming was, was still very new at that time, so there wasn't quite as much competition in the Super Nintendo, was uh, in, in many ways the undisputed champ at that time. But yeah, A Link to the Past um, definitely defined an era, I think. Um, for a, for a certain kind of gamer and many people will often cite this as their their favorite Zelda game of all time there there are people quite a few of them who are of the opinion that this game has yet to be surpassed and uh, I think what we're going to find is that uh, that is going to come down mostly to people who play Zelda games for a, a certain kind of gameplay. You know, um, I'm willing to bet that Max Nichols really, really likes this game. <laughs> you know, 
and so, you know, whenever whenever he comes on later in the season, which uh, spoiler alert, we've already got him booked up for two episodes. So we've got actually most of our guests booked up and there's a very good group of guests coming along this season. I think this will probably be our strongest guest season. Uh, so far we were way ahead of the game on this one and honestly it's going to be a great mix uh, obviously of returning favorites um and a couple news and a couple news um everybody who has been on the podcast before now is getting invited to come back on the podcast at some point this season so yeah that's for sure yeah but uh yeah uh, hopefully one or two exciting new guests as well can't wait to reveal those but yeah um i think we're gonna run into a lot of very varying opinions on this game. Um, I think to some people it's going to be a classic that has never been surpassed. And to some other people, it's going to be always a product of its time, you know? Yeah. Um, and you know, one of the things that I'm really excited about with this game is it's, it will be my first time ever playing through it, as I mentioned. So I get to come at this game without the nostalgia glasses and I get to come at this game without really having too much of a background in super Nintendo games in general. Um, that was a little bit before my time. And so, like, I, I I will be coming at this from the place of, I think a lot of our listeners will be coming at it from the same place as well, or at least some of, you know, I, I have enjoyed Ocarina of Time and beyond for Zelda so far. And so playing a game that is, uh, you know, this dated is not exactly the right word, but this early on in the Zelda canon, this early on in the history of gaming uh, will be a little bit of a different experience. And um, one thing I have always known and really, especially since we've started doing this podcast, have noticed about gamers in general is rose colored glasses when it comes to older games is just such a real thing. And like getting past that. And and I had to do this in our last season with uh, Skyward Sword. I really had to try to take try my best to take the rose colored glasses off yeah. and just like and see the game as what it is, not only in its historical context, but in the context of the games that have come after it, have come before it and in the context of gaming today. So there's just so many factors that go into, especially when we get to the end of this season, we have to rank this against all other Zelda games like it's part of our job and part of our pleasure really to try to view these games as objectively as possible um, while still honoring the nostalgia that some of them bring. Right. It is. It is. There's a fine line to walk. It's a tightrope for sure. I will say, um, I don't want to get too much into this because I I have, I want to get into some thoughts around like the legacy of this game a little bit more uh, once we get into the Sacred Realms rundown. But I, I, I will just say that I think that um, there are some other games that we're going to play, and I'm, I'm looking squarely at the NES Zelda games, right? Especially The Legend of Zelda, Zelda 1. Um, I think that when we get around to playing that game, whenever that happens, we are going to be able to appreciate what it brought to the table for the very first time and also be super freaking frustrated with it the entire time. Like I'm not expecting, this is a a big pre-bias honestly, but like I'm not expecting the legend of Zelda to ever end up super high on our personal ranking. There's no way it cracks the top 10. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've never played it, so we'll see. But uh, with A Link to the Past, I will say that there are some things that it has going for it that, um, in my memory, because I have played this game several times, do bring it up into the top echelon of Zelda games. And it does have some slightly dated gameplay design sensibilities, and it is somewhat more opaque in its, um, you know, in its uh, puzzle solving um, from time to time than we're accustomed to. But 
there are also a lot of things about this generation, the 16-bit generation of games, that have kind of endured long after, like, I mean, long since we've gotten better hardware than 16-bit consoles, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, everything from the art style to the sound design to, you know, this, like, even just the minute-to-minute gameplay that Link to the Past offers, there are a lot of Zelda-likes out there that attempt to replicate that just because it is a very enduringly successful formula. Um Yeah, I mean, so I think for all those reasons, there is a lot of gold to be found here. And I I just want you to know up front that, like, yes, for you, it's always going to come down to, you know, the top down Zeldas are not like you don't have the the same feelings and nostalgia for them as you do for the others. Right. But I do think that there is going to be a lot for you to dig into here and a lot for you to critically think about when it comes time to stack it against other Zelda games. Oh, for sure. And like. Even just within this first section, not to get ahead of ourselves here, but even within this first section, I can see how I can very easily stack this up against, at the very least, other top-down games that I've played in the past and how I can see it being superior in some ways, right? Like, there there are a lot of things that I enjoyed uh, about this first section itself. Um, and to your point, like, Zelda clones and Zelda likes, uh, especially in the indie, in the indie sphere today uh, on the Switch... Um, Hyperlight Drifter, Shovel Knight, things like that, that are, you know, Zelda clones in the 16-bit style. Like, you don't see, you know, OG Doom clones anymore. You, but you do see Yeah, not Zelda really. Clone. Yeah, so, yeah. like, there is definitely something that is captivating about this generation of games that has endured far beyond, um, that has endured far beyond its time. Yep, yeah. Completely 100% agree with you. Can't wait to get into all of that. Uh, Of course, uh, in this first episode of a new season, we always talk first impressions of the game as well. So a lot of that, like, you know, how do we feel about the style and the sound, all that kind of stuff? We'll we'll get into that. But uh, before we do, I want to knock out the housekeeping real quick so that we can just dive right into it. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game. Then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to bonus episodes, write in listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much, much more. Uh, As we said at the top of the show, this is the beginning of season four. Season one was Ocarina of Time. Season two was Link's Awakening. And season three was Skyward Sword. Uh, Feel like you are uh, you as the listener should feel like you're under absolutely no obligation to listen to all of this in order. And if you're just jumping on the train now, feel free to head back into our back catalog and, uh, you know, play through or listen through. one of our old seasons of the show while you're playing that game. That sounds like a pretty fun thing to do, you know? Maybe. I mean, I think so. It's uh, it's always fun. The The entire, you know, basis of this podcast is kind of a play-along pod. Um, mm-hmm. It's really fun for us. As I know there are a couple of our listeners that engage with us really heavily on social media. Um, West, uh, our, our friend West, 3DP, mm-hmm. uh, Troidal Power, um, yep. our play-along pod 
friends over at Hyrule Podcasters um, and our and Play Along Pod as well uh, have have commented a lot about playing through <laughs> games with us all, all at the same time. And so Hyrule really Podcasters, wonderful. I would be seeing those guys again. I'd, you know, maybe a little bit of uh, foreshadowing there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so like, it's it's really fun for us when you guys play along with us, and I hope you guys do. Even if you go back through our back catalog and are playing through, throw us some comments on social media. Let us know if you agree or disagree or have any strong feelings about the way we are talking about the games. We're happy to uh, talk to you guys about it on our Patreon, social media, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you guys want to talk about. We're always there to have a good conversation. Yep. Heading into A Link to the Past, the ranking as it stands at the moment on Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast, is number one, Ocarina of Time, number two, Skyward Sword, and number three, Link's Awakening. Where will Link to the Past stack up against those? We'll let you know in 12 weeks. <laughs> and really, guys, like the, the funny thing is, is I think we're knocking out four of at least the top six strongest games in the in the catalog, like right off the bat. Right. Like four, four, at least four of the top 10. They're biggies. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, I don't want to say downhill or anything, but like we've got Majora's Mask and Wind Waker coming up that are always in that conversation. And then, you know, we've got some other ones as well. The Oracle games and, um, Minish Cap. Minish Cap is, is a dark horse for all is always a dark horse for just like fantastic. Someone always puts it in the top five. And then Breath of the Wild is just one of those most polarizing Zelda games of all time. So, uh, we've got some really great Zelda coming up as well. So stick with us as we go through and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to see where we come out at the end of this whole thing. Uh, will our preconceptions be shaken to their very foundation? Or will the uh, the old tried and true Ocarina of Time stand the test of time? Uh, get it? Time time travel pun. Hey. Uh, and stick at that number one spot. We'll see. Only time <laughs> will tell. Who can say? Who can really say? Well, let's go ahead and embark on the journey, Matt. This is, of course, the Sacred Realms Rundown. It's a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel today. We are covering A Link to the Past, Chapter 1, starting something brand new here. Part 1 of the Sacred Realms Rundown is, as always, the plot recap as read by Matt. Uh, I've been told that this one is significantly shorter than <laughs> anything we did for Skyward Sword, and uh, Matt was very relieved to hear that that's probably going to continue being true for the entire rest of this season. So. Look, uh, season three was my favorite season we've done so far, but I tell you what, I'm not going to miss those 2,000 word plot recaps. That was like it was fun in some ways, but man, it felt like another full time job sometimes just like sitting down and cranking out a plot recap after playing <clears throat> that section of game. So I'm, I'm not, uh, not exactly sad to be leaving those behind, but, uh, here we go. You made it look easy, Matt. I appreciate that very much. It was always a good time to uh, to at least it was always a good time to read them. Typing them was the not <laughs> not as fun part, but reading them was always fun. All right. Here we go with the plot recap. Matt, take it away. In a time long past, in the beautiful kingdom of Hyrule, there were legends told of an omnipotent and omniscient golden power that resided in a hidden land. Many people throughout time have tried to gain this power by force, but none who tried ever succeeded or returned from the quest. 
One day, an evil force began emanating from this golden land, so the king of Hyrule ordered the seven wise men, or sages, to seal the entrance to the hidden land for all time. But when these events were obscured by the mists of time and became legend, a mysterious wizard known as Aghanim came to Hyrule to break the seal and steal the power for himself. He committed regicide against the good king of Hyrule, and one by one began to make the descendants of the sages disappear, using dark and evil magic. Soon, it will be the Princess Zelda's time of destiny. As we lay asleep in our bed, a voice cries into our dreams, pleading for help. The voice claims to be none other than Princess Zelda, who is being held captive in Hyrule Castle Dungeon. She tells us about the wizard Aghanim doing something to the other missing girls, and how she is the only one remaining, and that the seal is in danger. As we wake from this extremely vivid dream, our uncle immediately tells us that he is leaving the house and should be back by morning, but that we should under no circumstances leave the house. He leaves fully armed, with nothing else to give us an idea of what he's up to. But guided by the vision within our dreams, we head toward the Hyrule Castle prison, which we now know has a secret entrance in the garden. We make our way past guards and traps, and when we enter the sewers, we find our uncle mortally wounded. He passes on the sword and shield, reminding us about the spin attack passed down by our ancestors, and promptly passes away. With no time to grieve, we push forward through the underground passages, past the guards in our search for the princess. We finally find the dungeons, and at the very end of the passageway is a black-clad soldier wielding a ball and chain. After a short battle, we defeat this foe and rescue Zelda. She asks us to promptly take her to the sanctuary, which lies behind the main throne of the castle. As is our duty, we head to the throne room and open up the hidden passage that leads to the sanctuary. After passing through the dark and vermin-infested tunnels, we come to the sanctuary where the wise old priest tells us to go to the nearby village and speak to the elder there, and he can point us to the Master Sword. Once we reach the village, we find that the elder is missing and no one knows where he is. We decide to investigate further all over the village, and finally, a young boy tells us that the elder has gone to a safe house in the eastern mountains. We head there immediately to learn what we need to obtain the Sword of Legend. Once we get there, the Elder sends us to the Eastern Temple to obtain the first of three pendants, the Pendant of Courage, as a testament of our prowess. So, we head to the temple, past Armos, some more knights, and some other enemies. The temple is predictably full of baddies, traps, puzzles, and oddly some rolling metal balls that try to crush us as we move through the opening sections. Using the handy lamp that we got from our home, we move throughout the dungeon, defeating the baddies and solving the puzzles along our way. Eventually, we find the big key, which allows us to open all the doors and chests in our path, leading finally to the powerful bow. Using this bow, we can now defeat the Armos from a safe distance and continue on our way. In the final room, we find full of six Armos that are trying to crush or smoosh us. 
Using our new handy bow, we make short work of a couple, but as some fall, the rest become more and more aggressive. Finally, only one is left, and in its rage, it jumps high into the air to attempt to crush us beneath its feet. But after some quick footwork and some accurate bowmanship, which I don't even know is a word, but I like it, so I used it. Uh, I believe bowmanship is a word. We're going to keep it. We defeat this final foe and claim the medallion of courage for ourselves. Now it's back to the village elder to learn about the master sword as promised. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. Man, it really feels like you just blew through that one. I mean, it really did. Like I was trying to <laughs> trying to pat it out a little bit. I even used like the intro cinematic and I'm like, that just feels so short compared to what I was I'm used to doing at this point. But, you know, I'm I ain't mad about it. Yeah. I mean, it's just from a plot standpoint. It's uh I hesitate to call it bare bones, right? But there was just so much less that was expected from a video game of this era in terms of telling of what we what we would consider a very very fleshed out story um in a lot of ways this has i mean you can kind of definitely see how ocarina of time was the next major iteration after this right because for sure like ocarina of time has a lot more plot than this but still a lot less than say skyward sword so this is oh yeah an even earlier point than that so i think we're going to get a lot of that but that's okay just because it's uh brief does not mean that it is unenjoyable uh, agreed Let's get into part two, which is our takes, where we talk about how we felt about this section of the game. Matt, I want to give the floor to you first. I would love for you, as somebody who's never played this game before, to give me your first impressions about The Legend of Zelda in all of its 16-bit glory. So, my very first impression, obviously, the opening opening scene with uh, the music that plays the da da na 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 like this was pretty cool it was pretty hype i was like yeah this is dope um the version of the master sword that you know drops down into the middle of the triforce with the weird eye actually reminded me very heavily of soul caliber for some reason like as soon as i saw the master sword on that intro screen i was like is this like soul is there, are they like is that soul caliber-esque you mean when it drops into the z in yeah zelda yeah 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 okay. so, but yeah. the sword itself it's got it looks like an eye in in the middle like oh, soul edge just because and, of the like the, the graphics yeah exactly uh, yeah, i was like gotcha. oh man it's like weird soul edge vibes going on i don't know is this this is weird. like it's like a master sword before we really figured out what the master sword looks like <laughs> exactly yeah. right yeah 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 <laughs> um so that was a little bit off but i was like i know that that's supposed to be the master sword because it's the legend of zelda and like i think this is the first game that the master sword like shows up i don't yes, know yes it is. it is okay so i but i knew that the master sword was a part of this game just from my general knowledge of zelda so i was like i'm pretty sure that's the master sword but it looks kind of weird anyway um so that that whole intro thing was cool and then we go into the cinematic you know telling the backstory and as i'm like watching this intro cinematic and it's talking about the golden power and the hidden realm and the this guy's trying to steal it and the seven wise men steal it and i was like oh so Ocarina of Time. Like yeah. The, okay. We're talking about the Ocarina of Time storyline right now. Yes. Before we move on with your first impressions, we did say that at the top of every season, we were going to explain where each game fits into the timeline, as we explained at the end of Ocarina of Time season. Um, so let's go ahead and do that here. Just as a reminder, there are three main timelines in The Legend of Zelda. The one that this pertains mostly to is going to be what is called the Downfall timeline and i believe chronologically this is the earliest game in the downfall timeline after ocarina of time i thought that wind waker was the earliest one wind waker's in the adult timeline 
Oh, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So the downfall timeline presumes that at the end of Ocarina of Time, Link is defeated by Ganon. Um, so we've we've defeated Ganondorf. We've escaped from the castle with Zelda. Ganon comes up from the ruins, possessing the Triforce of Power, and Link falls to Ganon. But Zelda and the sages are still able to seal Ganon into uh, what was at that time the Sacred Realm where the Triforce was kept. Yeah, which then becomes the the Dark, dark world. world. The Dark yeah. World, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anywho, so this game takes place hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after that. Um, and the events that they're mentioning in this cin- cinematic callback clearly to that. They there's some things that are a little bit different. They called them the wise men here, and obviously they were uh, a sages instead. Yeah, not all men. They were not all dudes in Ocarina <laughs> of Time. But like, yeah, th- I mean that's kind of what they're talking about. Ocarina of Time was intended very much to be a prequel to this game. Yeah, when it was developed originally. So yeah, so so I'm watching the intro cinematic. All that's cool, and then uh, I got a little bit of a jolt seeing that Aghanim is apparently the main villain i don't know obviously i've never played the game so i don't know if that's true or not no spoilers but um i was like oh cool so it's not ganon or ganondorf that's, that's kind of new for me and i'm proud of you for pronouncing Aganim's ra- name correctly the first time well okay this one's a little easier because it's yeah phonetically it's very easy to yeah. see in my opinion also i'm not nine years old trying to pronounce navi you know <laughs> you know whose name is not easy to pronounce Girahim. no i was good the elder's full name it's, oh, I, I didn't even try that. I'm just gonna call him it's, the elder. It's Sahashrila. Yeah, I'm just gonna call him the elder because I'm not. I'm not willing to butcher that one. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Oh um, man. Uh, so yeah, I was like, okay, Aghanim, that's new, not Ganon. That's I, I'm there for it. You know, I've played Minish Cap where Vati is the main enemy, so I'm like, not. I'm not unused to Ganon not being the main bad guy. Demise, you could argue, is basically just Ganon in a different skin. Um. Vati is not, and Aghanim appears, at least right now to me, to not be Ganon in a different skin. So yeah. um, uh, that was kind of neat. Uh, Zelda being, again, our main damsel in distress, needing rescue. Uh, that's not a new trope whatsoever. Um, the the descendants of the sages was kind of interesting. Um, so I was like, cool, all right. I've got the lay of the land. Time to jump into the story. Boom, let's do it. Um, classic Zelda trope of Link begins every single game that I know of asleep. And uh, the one one weird thing, though, is that we immediately start out with Zelda. We immediately start out with Zelda telepathically communicating with us, which to me right off the bat indicates there's some unspoken connection there. I don't know if that's really going to relate to us being wielders of the various pieces of the Triforce or not. I don't know. I'm just kind of guesstimating. But uh, that was kind of neat. Um, plea for help. We jump out of bed and I was like, who the heck is this guy who's in the house? I'm assuming father. Lyndon later corrected me as uncle. Don't know how you're supposed to know that, but whatever. Um, yeah, he's going off and I'm like, cool. So you're going to do whatever you're going to do. I guess I'm going to the castle without a sword or a shield. Um, moving on, we just kind of go through one of the first things I noticed was, you know, moving through this first section of the game without a sword or a shield was a lot like um, Ocarina of Time in Kokiri Forest, where you're kind of going through that first section, you're exploring the movement a little bit. Um, 16-bit, it's a, you know, X and uh, X and Y axis. There's not really a Z axis to worry about. So pretty, pretty basic stuff. Um, the map I actually figured out how to use the map pretty quickly. And the map in this game is very, very useful. 
Um, cause I was like, I don't know where Hyrule Castle is and I don't really feel like wandering around aimlessly for a long time. So I figured out where the map was and it's very, very helpful. Well, and, and importantly, it's all filled in from the get go. Like, yeah, there's nothing that's like shrouded in clouds. So it's like shows you where everything is. And I was like, and it's also got a bright red X marks the spot where you're trying to go. So it's like, cool, I can do that. So easy path along, uh, pretty good, um, movement again, pretty simple, very easy um, jumping down into the well immediately come across your dying relative. And I was like, cool, he's dead. I that sucks, I guess. I don't know. Am I supposed to feel bad about this? Am I supposed to feel anything about this? Because I don't grab the sword and shield. Peace out. I guess he gets eaten by rats in the sewer because <laughs> like Link doesn't even take his body out to bury him like man we got princesses to save you yeah know? apparently yeah so you know we're gonna leave dead body over there and move on through um combat in top-down zeldas is always a takes me a little hot second to get used to i texted you and i was like how the heck do i use this shield because like i'm i like I'm trying to block with it using any of the bumpers or item it's, buttons. It's not find. very well explained. No, in the it's game. not explained at all. And uh, luckily, I know enough about you know top-down games and Zelda games in general to know that hit B to slash your sword. So I didn't have to figure that one out too uh, too bad. But I'm getting hit by these knights. I honestly, I died trying to figure out how to use the shield with my three hearts. I was like, I don't I know how combat works in this game yeah, whatsoever. So the shield in this game only works to block projectiles. Um, it's always active. So if you are facing an enemy and they fire a projectile at you, the shield will block it. It won't. Th- this this first shield will not block everything. Um, but at least in this point of the game, I think like arrows and stuff, it will. Um, if you slash, then the shield guard drops until the slash animation is done. Uh, but yeah, that's that's how it works. And it's it's definitely not the most intuitive thing in the world. It, I would not call it a major mechanic of this game. OK, fair, because I was like trying to like block the knights that were slashing at me and that did nothing. And I was like, yeah, no. So is the shield just decorative? I don't really know. And of course, that doesn't even last too much longer in the canon of Zelda games. Right. Because the next game after this was Link's Awakening and the shield is its own equipable item in that game. That uh, yeah. takes up a slot. And, so. and that's that's honestly where I was trying to come from an operating perspective with the shield of like I was treating it like a Link's Awakening shield where you could block moblins with it. Right. Like you could just put that guard up and stop someone from hitting you. And I'm trying to do that with these green knights that are coming at me trying to do their stabby stab. And I'm like, no, oh, no, stop. But no go. Yeah. The other thing I'm sure that you noticed immediately, and this is the thing that gets me about combat in this game every single time I play it, is that there is no diagonal range. I was getting there. Would you like to say it? Yes. Okay. There, There is exactly two directions in which you can slash. Sideways or uh, up down. Sideways or vertical. That's it. There is no, unless you're doing a spin attack, like your sword doesn't even go beyond your, let's call it 45 degree angle of whatever way you're looking. Like you have no broad sweeping range of motion. Yeah. So if you're not like right on the enemy when you swipe, you miss, which that was a little bit disorienting. And even in original Link's Awakening, because there was no diagonal movement in that game either. It's all X and Y. Right. Um, the sword had a much broader swing. Uh, and, and so when I played this game for the first time, because it looks on its surface, very, very much like Link's Awakening. Yeah. Very similar to Link's Awakening. Um, and it behaves very similar to Link's Awakening in a lot of ways, but that sword, 
uh, that sword hitbox, I guess, is much smaller. And, yeah. and that does take some getting used to. Of course, the move that they give you to compensate for that, um, this is why the spin attack is in the game. Like the very first thing you get. Yeah, that exists so that you can hit enemies with appropriate timing that are in more of your diagonal space. Yeah. So I quickly learned utilize the spin attack for basically everything. Um, so that's what I did. I just walked around charging the sword and I would spin and I would charge the sword and spin and charge. The sword. Yeah, I just keep going and going and going. Um, so overall first impressions there, I guess I would say 16 bit, pretty classic uh, movement style, uh, difficult, not super intuitive combat just from the get go. Um, spin attack, super useful shield, very not anything in my opinion right now anyway yeah but like aside from link having pink hair which is super off-putting so i actually looked into why that is um and i I don't completely understand it it has a very game design reason so the reason that 16-bit is called 16-bit is because any sprite any any little character that's in this game or any object it's all it's all sprites collected you know, as their collection of pixels that they use to create a tree or an enemy or link or whatever. And any sprite in this game can have a maximum of 16 colors assigned to it, which is why it's called 16 bit. So fair enough. The link sprite somehow on the code end of things, the link sprite actually has two states. There's link the way that we always see him. And then later in the game, if you get into the dark world before you're supposed to be able to, then link can transform into a bunny. Like until you get an item and then you can like exist in the dark world as human link. But bunny link has got a sprite and it's like it shares it shares a code. I don't I'm not explaining this right, but it's sharing a pool of available colors with the regular link sprite. And so when they got to link's hair, they did not have an extra color slot available to use a a different brown shade for his hair. Um but the but bunny link has pink on it so they had to use pink somewhere so they were like okay let's use let's use pink for this one and it's definitely a peculiarity of this game it's uh yeah it's a little uh, like i said off putting it's very <laughs> very interesting and i actually want to here give me one second i'm going to google this to make sure but i believe that in the game boy advance re-release of this game that was changed to make his hair uh blonde instead of pink hold on one second Okay, yeah. So, just confirmed in the Game Boy Advance release of this game, Link does have his appropriately colored hair. That was uh, one of several changes they made to that release of the game. It's essentially the same game. Uh, the other one was that his sword slash sound that he makes is the same one that they pulled from uh, Minish Cap. So, when Link does a spin attack in the Game Boy Advance version of this game, it's the same sound effect as Link doing the um, spin attack in Minish Cap, which I always thought sounded kind of out of place when I when I was playing this game the one time I played it on the Game Boy Advance because it's like it's very obviously a more complex sound effect than anything else that's going on here. So, whatever. But uh, yeah, so if you're playing this on the Game Boy Advance, and I'm willing to bet that most people who are playing along with us are not playing it in that format, but if you are, then that's a difference that you would will notice so so as you were looking that up i was i pulled up a uh, zelda dungeon.net i pulled up their walkthrough and apparently if you speak to the soldiers that block your path to hyrule castle they'll actually teach you some fundamental controls of the game which i feel like that would have been nice to know 
Yeah, and I probably I, should have done that. And I, I've never figured that out um, because, like, I know now that they won't attack you. But the first time I ever played this game, I always just assumed that they were bad guys and stayed away from them. Same. That's not true until after you rescue Zelda. But um, I thought it the first time, and every time I played the game after that, I already knew how to do all this stuff. So I was never like going and looking for any of that. You know? Yeah. No. Same. I just kind of assumed that they would attack me. So, so I, I, I want to talk a little bit about. Um, about the style of this game because sure. <laughs> because we've mentioned a lot already in in this episode and in the last one as well about the 16-bit style, the Super Nintendo pixel art style of game. And I think one of the things that I love about this game so much is, one, I really do like the soundtrack. Um, I've got a lot of nostalgia for Super Nintendo era video game music. Uh, my first experience with video games was on my uncle's Super Nintendo, and uh, the first game I ever played was Super Mario World. But that – like the Super Nintendo, all the games for it, their sound effects and music have a very particular sound. Um, it's very distinctive, and there's a reason for that. The Super Nintendo had a vastly superior audio chip to the NES, and it was one of the main selling points for that new console. Obviously, the the better graphics, um, if you want to call them that, were a draw as well. But um, the ability to do um, much more complicated music was was one of the things that it was billed as having as well. And so I really like this very Super Nintendo sounding. Like it's still like it's very far from the orchestrated soundtracks that we were hearing in Skyward Sword, but it is fun. Like it's uh it's just complicated enough in a very retro way to where I I enjoy it a lot. Um I like the 16-bit versions of a lot of these classic Zelda themes more certainly than like what you'll hear in the 8-bit versions like Game Boy Link's Awakening, for instance. I mean, they they sound really good. Um, I just think it's such a distinctive first moment of this game when you walk out of your house and, like, the rain is pouring down. It's a storm. You're getting the classic, like, we now associate it as being Ganon's theme music, but it's just kind of, in this case, used as more, like, ominous soundtrack, you know? For sure. Um, and it's we very get, moody. It, it's very tone-setting and moody. It is. And we get one of my absolute favorite Zelda themes of all time in this first section of the game, which is the Hyrule Castle soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, really good. Which, uh, that kind of gets used in a lot of later Zelda games whenever a member of the Hyrule family shows up or sometimes when you go into a version of Hyrule Castle. But um, I think it actually gets used most whenever a King of Hyrule shows up. Um, that kind of, that motif gets used quite a bit in Breath of the Wild whenever you're talking to King Rome, for yes, instance. Um, but it's also in Wind Waker and Twilight Princess, a few other games. So yeah, it's uh, the first instance of that. But I do think that moving aside from the music, I think these graphics really are gorgeous. Um, you know, they're, they are simplistic by today's standards, but there is a reason that this visual style is still so appealing to people. You know, as I'm looking at some of these stills, looking at the Zelda, Zelda dungeon.net um, walkthrough, like it really just reminds me of the OG red and blue Pokemon if it were colorized. Because, you know, obviously the OG red and blue were black and white. But like it just it brings back that memory of long car rides to Nebraska for us when we're playing mm, when I'm playing yeah. uh, Game Boy and um, it, it's like comforting. Right. Well, the, and the cool thing about 16 bit games is that they had actually a pretty long shelf life um, throughout the entire history of video game consoles up until now. Uh, the reason for that is that obviously the Super Nintendo generation that kind of brought 16 bit to. Uh, home consoles 
and then we moved on to the N64 after that. But then 16-bit had another resurgence when the Game Boy Advance came out. All the games that came out on Game Boy Advance were 16-bit. Um, and that generation obviously, you know, was quite a bit later than this one and took up quite a, a, a long span of time, you know. Um, so, yeah, 16-bit games have been a defining part of multiple games. I guess if you want to talk about generations of gamer, right? Like, um, and I tend to split those up into five year chunks, you know, depending on when somebody would have gotten into games as a kid and what consoles would have been available when that happened. Right. Uh, that's fair. I think that means you've got at least two, uh, two generations of gamer that are separated by about 10 to 15 years, more like 10 years. Um, where 16 bit was their jumping off point. And for so sure. they're always going to have nostalgia for that. For sure. Um, and, and like, as we've said, it ages well. Like, I, I didn't feel off put by the graphics here, right? Like, I, I didn't know what I was getting into, obviously, but I jumped into this game. And instead of, you know, when I go back and play the N64 Ocarina of Time at this point, like, it is a little off putting just how pointy everything is. Yeah. Um, but I didn't feel off put at all um, by the the graphics of of this game anyway, and um, it's like I said, it's kind of comforting and and enjoyable to to get back into, and it's easy to fall back into that pattern of movement, the pattern of um, how things flow. Let's talk for one a second. Thing, well, so one thing I do want to say about that was a little bit off putting, at least in the beginning, was um, the segment breaks moving from one section to the to the next where there's a full stop and then a screen slide and then a restart where it's like loading a new tile exactly and like nothing's moving while you do that and i know that that is strictly because when we played link's awakening we played the remastered version where there was none of that and it was a it was a smooth transition the whole time except for when you were in dungeons right and um so you know, moving around in the overworld where there is that full stop load of new tile and then resume is a little bit jarring. Isn't the right word because I know that that's how it, you know, systematically had to happen that at that time. But the first time it happened, I was like, uh, oh yeah, that that's a thing for this game. Duh. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about inventory management in this game, because we had a lot to say about that in Link's Awakening and a lot of comparisons that we made on the remastered Link's Awakening to the Game Boy version of Link's Awakening. Of course, that system in the Game Boy version was you only have two item slots and you have only got like and and like the sword and the shield were bound to just those two item slots. They were bound to the A and the B buttons on the controller and you know, it was not possible to have your sword and the rock's feather and the bow equipped. If you wanted to jump and then fire an arrow, you had to unequip your sword and just have the rock's feather and the bow. Yeah. This game has a different system where you've got one item slot and you can have any item equipped in that slot from your inventory. Uh, and then the sword is permanently bound to its own button. And to me, it's interesting to look at this because um, – if I'm the designers of Link's Awakening, I can kind of see maybe where they thought that that system was giving a little bit more versatility, like just by virtue of being able to choose whether or not to have your sword equipped. I think the actual reason for it was that uh, the Game Boy has less buttons than the Super Nintendo. Yeah. So there's that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a little bit more restrictive. 
uh, certainly than like Ocarina of Time or Wind Waker or any of those games where you can have like three main items keyed to different buttons and your sword is permanently available. Um, at this early point in the game, it doesn't come up too terribly much uh, because you don't have that many items yet. But there are still sections where you've got to rotate from one thing to another thing, and it does require a full stop to the start screen, rotate through your through your <laughs> and then equip whatever item you need. Right. Um, definitely a much older way of managing inventory. Yeah. So that was going to be one of my things when we got to the dungeon was just like having to rotate constantly through whether I'm using the boomerang or the lamp or some bombs or the bow. Um, that was honestly a little bit off putting and I think will probably continue to be off putting mostly because I've never played a Zelda game where my sword and shield were not permanently equipped and then I had an extra two item slots to to have, right? Like, I I, I haven't. Yeah. Uh, the only version of Link's Awakening that I ever played was the Switch remaster where you had sword and shield were separate and then you had two item slots and every other Zelda game that I've played, even the Oracle games had two item slots plus, you know, sword and shield. So, like, uh, it, it was... It's very off-putting for me to be playing a game where I have... The Oracle games have the original Link's Awakening. Well, that's... Okay, that might be true. I played the Oracle games literally 20 years ago, so I don't remember (laughs) them very well. Fair enough. So, uh, but anyway, it's... It is hard for me to get into the muscle memory, especially coming off of Skyward Sword, um, to make that habit of, oh, dang, I'm... I'm pushing the item button and I'm throwing my lamp instead of trying to, sh- I want to shoot the bow, but I don't have that equipped. Okay. I got to pause and scroll over and then unpause. And yeah. Yeah. So, uh, before we get into the dungeon, I do want to talk about the first little playable section of this game, which is kind of a mini dungeon. And that is the Hyrule castle stuff. You go through the sewers. And- yeah. So I felt like we went through at least two dungeons here. Like, uh, I mean, the very first section of this game, once you get into the Hyrule Castle, is, in my opinion, a dungeon, and the, the boss is the the chain, the ball and chain knight. Like, there's puzzles you solve. There's an item you have to use, the lamp. There's the sword and shield that you're learning. There's there's enemies to fight. Like, it, you, it get, felt, you get an item in it. Yeah, you get the boomerang. And, which they just sort of throw at you really early in this right, game. Right, and it's not super OP like it is in Link's Awakening. But, it is, um, however, useful, and I do want to... Very useful. I do want to ask... Is I mean, did you know enough to use that as a, a main part of your trying to kill the chain ball guy? Absolutely. Yeah, I stunned the shit out of that guy. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I think that that's like I think that is one of the reasons that they give you that item so early in this game, because it is just useful for stunning dudes. And that makes combat easier, you know? Yeah. Uh, makes in my in my personal experience, make com- makes combat doable. Uh, first impression on combat in this game. Do you find it difficult? Yes very like i lose a lot of hearts and i only have three and i I died twice at least in this very first section of the game yeah these older games are punishing man like yeah there's no room for error at all and there's no learning curve and you're just you're just gonna die you die and you die and that's it uh so so i did not die in this first section of the game but i got really close several times like i had a little sweat coming up on the back of my neck several times and i was just like oh crap they're gonna (laughs) they're gonna they're gonna do me like this like right off the bat do me dirty and uh all donor this time yeah and so it's just not one of those games where i think i'm going to be able to play it without dying but yeah i mean it's just hard these older games are harder yeah totally agree 
but but just in terms of the mini dungeon Hyrule Castle, I mean, it's got some fun introductory puzzles that more than anything else serve as uh, kind of tutorials for how to solve puzzles later in the game. Also, I love that throwing pots at people is an extremely viable way of doing damage. I actually used pots as weapons more often than not in this mini dungeon and in the real dungeon. No, it's just no shame in that. Yeah, no shame whatsoever in using your environment to bag some easy kills. Yeah, and also pushing the blue knights off of the edges in the in the dungeon was was a go-to for me as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go ahead and get into part three, which is the dungeon map, where we analyze this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more... The dungeon this week is the Eastern Palace, and I want to go first here. So I think that dungeons in Zelda games have a bad habit. First first dungeons in Zelda games have a bad habit of being way too easy. I would totally agree with that statement, yes. And I think that this dungeon is probably the hardest first dungeon in any Zelda game that I've played. It's, you know, it's not brutally difficult. But it is unforgiving in the same way that any, you know, any combat is in this game. Okay, combat perspective, yeah, I agree with you. And it's like the puzzles are not complicated necessarily. But uh, I don't know. I just think it's a much more substantial first dungeon than we get a lot of the time. So I definitely agree from the combat perspective. Again, having never played this game, I didn't have a hard time progressing through this dungeon at all. I just kind of followed some paths, uh, hit some switches, and like went through some doors, and was just like, there was at no point where I was sitting there thinking to myself, how am I supposed to move forward in this dungeon? From a combat health management perspective, it was definitely very difficult. There are some enemies in this section of the game that you cannot kill. The the anti fairies, the little guys with the little red balls that fly yeah. around, yeah, like those dudes do me in. They do me in so hard every time, and because um, you just have to like avoid them. Yes, and I like ah, uh, I'm trying to like fight three armos and like two of those little skull dudes that are jumping around, and then these anti fairies are flying around too, and I'm like ah, stop it. Nah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it was definitely combat wise difficult. I didn't die in the dungeon, which is uh, I was very proud of. Um, but I mean, think about this dungeon, especially up against like Tail Cave. In Link's Awakening. Oh, uh, or, way harder than Tail Cave. I mean, way harder than Deku Tree. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's a lot more difficult. Um, Again, I don't necessarily think more difficult from a puzzle perspective. Definitely more difficult from a puzzle perspective than Deku Tree. But maybe that's just because I played Deku Tree ten times. Uh, I don't know. Combat-wise, absolutely, definitely harder. I think that this dungeon has maybe not as much of like a visual and aesthetic identity all to itself as a lot of others. But the the thing I really do like about this dungeon is that it's kind of like a it's kind of like a statement for how dungeons are going to exist going forward because my, my recollection based on the little that I've played of the OG Legend of Zelda is that those dungeons were rudimentary. Yeah, uh, like uh, especially now. Like at the time I'm sure that they were very impressive but um they are rudimentarily structured Mm -hmm. and in this dungeon you know it has a somewhat more sprawling map it's got traps and environmental set pieces you know metal balls that are flying around that you've got to avoid and all that um and so i yeah i just think that this is very much a uh a statement it's the game saying hey this is kind of this is where we're going forward with. So you know? I, I I appreciate, I think it aesthetically 
matches the environment in which it sits. So like the eastern section of this map seems to really have an identity as the earthy, sandy, the the green is like a is like a jade color and you get inside the temple and all of the walls and all of the environment keep you know all of the edges are all the jade green the statues are all serpentine um it does feel like it belongs where it sits compared to the the overworld environment that it's in um i actually really think the overworld environment for this section of the game was probably the most visually stunning part of this this whole experience for me was Mm -hmm. you know walking through the the knights and the the jade green statues and um it felt very uh it felt very what's the like face shrine like the face shrine and links. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, I got a lot of that vibe, which I, I really like. Um, it was a lot of fun. Um, going up to the elders hideout and then to the Eastern temple felt very contiguous for me. <clears throat> and it was, uh, it was cool. It was enjoyable. I, I liked it a lot. And, the yeah, just the, the dark tones of, of this. Also, I really appreciate I th- and I what I think is a very intentional move on the designer's part is that the pendant of courage obviously being the analog to the triforce of courage which is related to Faror whose main color is green everything in this temple is green like I I have to think that that's probably intentional I don't know I'm just making a leap there but mm. um I like that makes it neat yeah no it's cool um let me see i'm trying to think okay so from a music standpoint this is one of those games where we've got a dungeon theme that oh my gosh i'm pretty sure i'm right about this i may need to go research this and maybe do an editing mic but i think we've got just a main dungeon theme for all the dungeons and it's this it's this theme that yeah. is in this one i think i know i think it might change when we get into the back half of the game and go to the dark world spoilers but um yeah i was about to say i I don't even know what that is okay cool but anywho uh so yeah and but i but i I like it you know it's it's yet another track that uh that works really well in the 16-bit sound chip so yeah it's a cool piece of music um the main item that we get in this dungeon once again talk bow yeah talk about items that we have uh very recently gotten super late (laughs) (laughs) very last one in our last game yeah uh, and here it's just like all right first dungeon here's the bow there you go yeet which i like because oh for sure this thing is love the bow this thing is just useful no matter how you slice it i mean for sure I, i was killing those skeleton bosses i was killing those armos i was killing everything with this bow like once i got the bow i was just walking around just shooting arrows at people I was like, I don't know. Can you get hurt by an arrow? I'm going to try it. Maybe. Um, it was fun. I like, I will perpetually hold the opinion that the bow is the best item in a Zelda game, except for the Link's Awakening boomerang. Like, I think consistently speaking, it's the most versatile, useful, combat, heavy, just good item case could certainly be made for it uh of course one of the things that we have to use this bow to do is to defeat this dungeon's boss and uh you know talking about again things that first zelda dungeons typically do is they have a boss that is not terribly difficult at all um and i think that these massive six armos are actually you know yeah they were no bueno so yeah you i mean you've got to your reflexes have to be decent uh you've got to really pick your shots well if you run out of arrows in that room you're kind of hosed 
Yeah, well, luckily I went into that fight with all 30 arrows, and I think I left with like three or four. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was just sitting there just like, boom, 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 boom. It's just let's throw the arrows, see if you hit something. Fun little frantic boss fight, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, I this is... I can't really think of too many instances in Zelda games where your final boss is more than one entity at a time. Um, I mean, max two that I can think of off the top of my head. And this was six. And I was like, they're going around in a circle as soon as you enter in. I was like, uh, am I just going to like stand at the back here and shoot into them? Or am I going to like move into the middle and try to shoot out? I don't know. It was like, ooh, this is kind of neat. It was fun. Yeah. yeah, I really enjoyed this boss fight. It was a, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Totally agree. One right. thing I do want to say before we move on from the dungeon map is um, the way that they have the switches throughout the dungeon that are hidden where they're just like slightly raised tiles. Yeah. Was really cool. And like I noticed it pretty quickly, but then it continued on as a as a um, recurring uh, mechanic and theme throughout the dungeon. So like from the first time I saw it, which was pretty easy. I was then from then on looking at all of the tiles on the floor in my immediate vicinity, seeing if any of them were raised that I could hit a switch. So like there was a really neat, subtle way of saying like, we're not going to give you a differently colored switch. That's just super obvious, but it's also not like obtuse. And it was kind of interesting and good intro mechanic for a, for a, number one dungeon well it's one of those things where they're you know they have more colors to play with with that 16-bit graphical style um and yeah i i like that they can do something like that and make it nice and subtle yeah for sure yeah all right let's move on to part four which is where we talk side quests and you know this is one where i think as we go through this season we may need to reevaluate kind of what we do with this slot because this is not a game that really has side quests and the way that we kind of think about them you know <laughs> yeah it's definitely got exploration for items um and for um upgrade materials i mean pieces of heart honestly being the main one but uh but yeah it doesn't really have character side quests the way that we would normally think about it's got one or two small ones but um so we'll we'll, we'll think about what we're doing with this section as we go forward maybe but we just call it the exploration section where did you explore outside of the main quest so uh i spent a lot of time moseying around kakariko village there's actually once you get the bombs there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of do in there walls that you can blow up and find pieces of heart or um there's actually two bottles that you can get in this first section didn't get either bottle i got no pieces of heart and no bottle yeah so uh i got two or three pieces of heart and uh two bottles one bottle you can just buy off of the merchant in the middle of kakariko village it costs 100 rupees i didn't even find him wow yeah and uh and then the other one is the uh so the bar in kakariko village it's got a hidden entrance in the back that you can walk through and there's a bottle in a chest there well that's cool yeah so you can get those and those are pretty nice um and then pieces of heart there's one or two behind bombable walls um and then there is there's one that you can kind of uh you can drop into a well at the back of kakariko village there's a piece of heart in there and then the <coughs> building that's the thieves hideout in kakariko i did go into the thieves hideout and i got all the rupees down there okay nice cool that that's that i did do that yeah you can actually get loaded on rupees pretty quickly. Yeah, I think I've like exited this section with like over 200. And I was like, dang, that's pretty impressive. Is there a rupee cap 
I'm assuming it's nine nine nine. I think it's nine nine nine. Okay, that, yeah, that seems reasonable. And there was also a, there was also a ruby room in the dungeon as well. Damn it! I did find the fairy room in the dungeon. Oh, really? Yeah, I found the fairy room. See, I didn't find the fairy room. Yeah, you, so there's the two vases that are before you use the big key on the first big door mm-hmm. after you get the bow. There's the two vases on the side. You can jump off the ledge uh, that is above either of those vases, and it'll drop you into a, a bottom section where there are two fairies floating around. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't get there. Uh, there is a rupee room where it's got it's got two of those anti-fairies bouncing around, and right. then there's just like three rows of blue rupees that you can... Maybe I did get that. That sounds familiar. I don't know. Not not super important. Regardless, you can actually accumulate a decent amount of cash at this at this early part of the yeah, game. Yeah, easily. So, yeah. I mean, the map opens up quite a lot after this. Um, you can do a lot more exploring, take part in a few mini games and, you know, do some stuff like that. Yeah, so. I fully intend to, like, do a decent amount of exploration now that I've got four hearts. Because I, I, my problem was every time I would try to, like, mosey around the map, I would run into, like, four or five knights that were all trying to pwn me. And I was getting down to, like half a heart very consistently and i was like okay i should probably get a little more uh life meter before i start moseying around too terribly much when i don't know what i'm doing so i I fully intend at some point to try to explore as many nooks and crannies of this map as i can but i'm still just very much trying to get a feel for timing and you know how the how combat works in this game before i'm feel comfortable just like moseying around Okay. Yeah, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. All right. Uh, let's move on to part six, which is our final thoughts. Matt, you want to give us a succinct little wrap up? What about, on- uh, what about Z-targeting? Oh, geez. I just blew right past you did. Part okay. five, which is Z-targeting, where we talk about interesting characters that we came across. Or enemies. Or enemies that we came across. Cool. Matt, you got a Z-targeting? I am going to go with um, our six Armos friends. And I'm going to go with them because this is one of the first boss fights that I really know of and can remember where uh, as you kill their companions, the others become more aggressive and and like more difficult. And like that was a really cool mechanic for me. Obviously, they don't have personalities or backstory or anything really uh, as far as character wise, but just the mechanic of. As you progress through the fight, it becomes harder and harder, not from a the boss enters like a second or third phase and gets new abilities. It is a you kill one and then the other five like step it up a notch and then you get down to the final one and he just goes full on red mode and starts jumping up in the air trying to squish you. And that was really cool. Like, And it took me off guard. I was like, oh, well, that's oh, cool. I, like this is getting harder as I go. And I like it was fun. I liked it a lot. So I'm going to go with our uh, Armos uh, sextet. Yeah. No, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to pick Link's uncle because <laughs> <laughs> he's got two seconds of screen time and then dies because I've got questions about this guy. Like, right. So one, uh, I don't know where he gets off thinking that he was going to go save the princess from the castle. Right. Uh, clearly some delusions of grandeur that are not backed up by actual prowess of any kind because he just kind of falls down the well and immediately dies. Like, can't even make that first hop did, down did the well. Did he die from falling down the well, or did he get stabbed and then, like, he's trying to keep going, but eventually, like, bleeds out? Like, what's the what's the story there? I thought that he, like, 
he fell down the well and succumbed to like the injuries sustained therein. I <laughs> I, I mean, that's what I was going with. I mean, it's definitely not a very uh, dignified way no, for this guy. Ig- ignoble. Yes. Uh, yeah, definitely not great. But I mean, clearly this dude was a very formative person in Link's young life because supposedly yeah because uh i guess we get our our um our desire to be a swordsman from this dude so we're better at it than he is and he's like utilize the technique that is passed down from our ancestors so like do you come from like a family of swordsmen if so what happened to your parents why are you being raised by your uncle why do you have pink hair and he's got blue hair why is there only one bed in this house Oh, wow, that is an uncomfortable question. Gross. I'm just wondering. I mean, I'm now I'm wondering. I wasn't <laughs> earlier, but now I am. Um <laughs> Yeah, are are they like in some way tied to the royal family? Are they swordsmen in service of the Hyrule royal family? There's like I have no backstory for Link or his uncle whatsoever at this point and I'm just kind of like rolling with it. That's so, all you. That's all you can do, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's like, all right. I guess we're saving the princess. I don't know why, but let's just do it. You're not getting any answers to these questions, so all you can do is wonder. Okay, yeah. fair enough. <laughs> we'll just you know operate in the dark for a while. It's there fine. There you go. Link's uncle gone, but not forgotten. Um, but already I've you know sort of forgotten about you. <laughs> I was about to say, <laughs> <Yeah>. really? <laughs> I think I think I have forgotten about him already. Oh man. Okay, part six. Final thoughts. Matt, wrap it up for us. So this was really fun for me. I, I have really enjoyed getting back into a not nostalgic for me, but I guess nostalgic adjacent for me. Uh back into the 16-bit realm of Zelda. I'm very excited to start this journey. Um, it's very, the story is obtuse and the characters are not fleshed out, but like I said, I'm rolling with the punches and we're just going to go for it. Um, I'm excited, uh, at, at the end of this section, I am looking forward to moving forward with the game and seeing where it takes us from here. So here's a question I have for you before we get out of here. So this game obviously is most comparable to Link's Awakening in terms of the games that we've played so far. Yes. Did you enjoy the first section of Link's Awakening or this game more? I would say so far I've enjoyed Link's Awakening more. The first section for sure. Um, I think that and and that's almost unfair because I'd never played Link's Awakening in its original version. But the story beats are the same. Yeah, they, in, in a lot of ways they are. And I think that um, I, I enjoyed um, the time on Coho Lint at, at the beginning a little bit more. Yeah, I think uh, I think it definitely has more character, Coho Lint does you know for sure um it's definitely we although we, the tone setting is excellent um in this game and i think the tone setting is better um for link to the past because it that especially with the opening cinematic um you really get a feel for like oh man getting real up in here like right off the bat um so i appreciate the tone setting a lot for link to the past and like the fact that they carry that the intra cinematic tone through into the environment with the storm and the and the musical themes uh is very appropriate um and and uh very good uh environmental storytelling i guess i'll say cool cool well said matt well said thank you 
man, I'm really excited to to move forward from here. I think, look, one thing that's not going to change is this game doesn't get any easier. So um, really excited to see kind of where you land with that. Yeah, it's going to be fun going from a game that was arguably the one of the least challenging Zelda games that I've ever played Sky, from a combat perspective. I didn't die in Skyward Sword. So like going from that to I've already died twice, like is going to be kind of fun for me. I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a little bit more of a difficulty uptick. And that is a little bit offset by the fact that difficulty in 16 bit and 8 bit games, you know, top downs really comes from a fact of enemies deal a lot of damage and it's all about timing and not about like movement. So like it's, it's a little bit, I feel like it's a little bit less skill based and more making sure you're not in the damage radius. It's, it's very different, I guess from a, from than the 3d games. So, but, but regardless, I am excited for a little bit more of a, sweat on the back of my neck am i gonna make it through this fight or not yeah yep cool it's gonna be fun gonna be a really good time this has been the sacred realms rundown we will of course be back next week with another installment of the sacred realms rundown where we'll we will be covering chapter two who man this is actually i'm looking at this i'm looking at the season schedule over here matt and somehow like this game is not as long of a game as skyward sword for sure but somehow we're getting like two extra episodes out of this thing that we got out of the skyward i think it's sword just season. because the i think it's just because there are more dungeons just looking at the zelda dungeon uh dot net i'm just seeing 13 different dungeons here so that's definitely going to play a big part of it i think whereas our average episode length in skyward sword was an hour and a half we're probably going to be pacing a little closer to the uh, hour-ish time frame here until we get our guests on to do a lot more, you know, getting their various opinions. Skyward Sword was one of the games that you and I had more episodes, just you and me, and we were still hitting an hour and a half, hour or 45 minutes because there was so much to talk about. So definitely not as long of a game, more sections of that same game or of this game than there were. But um, yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah, absolute lee matt you ready to get out of here i am i think i've said my piece and i'm just excited to keep moving through cool it uh it, you know what it just gets more fun from here so it's going to be a whole fun time lots of twists and turns lots of stuff that i'm excited to uh, see you discover for the very first time so including how to move freely about the map and find some uh find some extra goodies yeah well hey you could have done that this week and yeah you, I and you just I didn't. didn't all right all right all right Guys, it's been a great time, as always, talking to you about Zelda games that we are playing. We always enjoy it. If you enjoy it, and if you enjoyed today's show, and if you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod, and you can become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us. More reviews means that more people see our show, and that makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind-the-scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on A Link to the Past, Chapter 2, which is going to be the Desert Palace as the main dungeon. Um, We'd love for you to play along with us and share your thoughts on our social channels. Link to the Past can be played in a variety of places from the original Super Nintendo to the Game Boy Advance to a variety of Nintendo console eShops. 
as well as that really cool Nintendo uh, Super Nintendo Mini. Um, or, of course, you can play the version that we are playing, which is on the Nintendo Switch via the online subscription service. In the meantime, may your hearts be full and may your arrows never miss. We'll catch you guys next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.